Hey everybody, welcome to The Past and the Curious. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you that we got our Patreon account up and running. So go there, give us money, help us afford to do this, because it's eating into my pocketbook. Speaking of, here's a word from our sponsor. Heiny, 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 brothers, coffee, heiny, 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 brothers, coffee, heiny. Heiny Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Past and the Curious. This is episode number seven and uh, we're just delighted with the way things are going. Got some great reviews on iTunes. If you haven't given us one what are you doing go there give us one make it a good one too uh you should follow us on facebook you should follow us on instagram you should follow us on twitter you should follow us on social media things that haven't been invented yet just whatever get on uh today's show is a tasty one you might be hungry it's all about food uh and we've got some really great guests i'm excited um as always our good friend victoria Rybel is here She's going to read a fantastic story about the invention of the potato chip. And Jason Lawrence from Brooklyn, New York will be here as well. And our special guest from the Food Network, Damaris Phillips. I'm excited as can be about that. If you're like us, sometimes there can be a word which, as much as you try to remember its meaning, and as often as you remind yourself what it means, and as badly as you want that word to be an effortless part of your vocabulary, it lives in a weird nether region of your brain. You constantly find yourself chasing its meaning, but you don't give up. You will master that one silly word eventually. One of the best ways we've found to really learn anything is to create something around it. So today's episode has two distinct themes. One, you'll find all of the stories relate to food. But they also fit a theme of a word we often have trouble with. These food stories are apocryphal. Apocryphal? What does that mean? I'm so glad you asked, because hopefully, if I tell you, I'll understand it even better. And then never forget. When we're talking about stories from history, apocryphal stories are tales which are of doubtful authenticity. They are most likely not true. In some cases, it can be hard to determine, though the stories are often widely accepted as the truth. These false stories become part of folklore. Did a young George Washington chop down his father's cherry tree, and when asked if he had done so, reply, I cannot tell a lie. 
he probably did not. But most people have heard that story. Did Betsy Ross sew the first American flag? Research shows that this is probably not true. By the way, a fascinating signer of the Declaration of Independence, Francis Hopkinson, may have been the one to do that. And maybe we'll tell a story about that someday. But that's beside the point. How did we all come to believe that old Betsy Ross designed the flag? Well, that's why it's apocryphal. The word traces its roots to Latin and Greek and is related to things that were hidden. Just like the truth is hidden in the stories about the cherry tree, the flag, and countless other stories of doubtful truth. Does that mean that some apocryphal tales can't be based in truth, or at least partially true? Well, as you'll see in a few tales of tasty and common foods you probably eat often, it is possible. Parts of these tales are true, and others are dubious. But that's another word for another day. Now here's Victoria Rival. George Speck was proud of the food he cooked as chef at the Moon Lake House. Wild game was his specialty, and he fed it to some of the most famous names of the 1800s. Vanderbilt, Gold, Hilton, you name them, they probably enjoyed his cooking. And cooking something unusual and fancy is one thing, but a potato? No big deal, right? But here stood the waiter, holding a plate that George had sent to the table not five minutes before. What's wrong? his sister Kate asked. Kate had worked in the kitchen with him for years. They were very close and could move together in a kitchen like clockwork. The meat is too rare, or, or maybe he doesn't like the venison. Nah, the waiter said. The meat's fine. He doesn't like the potatoes. The potatoes? <laughs> no one had ever sent back George's potatoes. His recipe was foolproof, essentially a thick-cut french fry. Everyone knew they were delicious and easy to fork, but this man complained that they were too thick and too soft. Well, okay, George said incredulously as he threw a couple of potatoes to his sister. She had a steadier hand. She'd slice them a little thinner, and he'd fry them a little longer. A few minutes later, a plate was sent to the table with thinner, but not too thin, potatoes, which had been fried a little bit longer. Before they left the kitchen, Kate sprinkled them with a bit of salt. On George and Kate went, preparing the next dish for another diner at the resort in Saratoga Springs, New York. That is, until the waiter walked back through the kitchen's double doors with the plate of potatoes in his hand. One single french fry had a bite from it. They were, of course, smaller and thinner than the first ones, but yet here they stood, rejected a second time. Are you kidding me? George muttered under his breath. Boy, oh boy, Kate exclaimed. We've got a finicky customer today. I guess I cut him too thin. Does he want something else, or did he realize the potatoes were right the first time? No, no, the waiter said. He wants them thinner. Thinner, George exclaimed. That's absurd. Paper-thin potatoes? There will be nothing left. Now, exasperated, the brother and sister were convinced that this finicky customer didn't really want what he thought he wanted. He'd understand his error when they sent out what he was asking for. So Kate grabbed her sharpest knife and drew it a few times along the honing edge, just to make sure it was razor-thin. She crouched down at the chopping block and stared a mean, icy stare into the eye of that poor, defenseless potato. 
With sure, smooth, slow strokes of the blade, she shaved slice after slice of silver dollar-sized circles from the potato. They were as thin as a penny. George, feeling much the same way, then submerged these slices into boiling oil. Normally, his thick-cut potatoes would just sit in this hot bath long enough to crisp the outer edges. No one wanted them fried through with oil, or so he thought. But he was making a point, so he left them in the oil three, four, five times as long as he normally would. When he finally pulled the potatoes from the hot oil, they were fried solid. There was no softness, no mush, nothing to grab with a fork. In fact, when George tried to stab a potato slice with a fork, the sad thing just broke into crumbs. Perfect, George said sarcastically. Not yet, his sister Kate interrupted. She began coating the potatoes in salt, thinking she was adding to the point her brother was making and that the man would be disgusted with the food he insisted upon. And for a third time, the potatoes were carried to the table. George and Kate tried to move on to the next dish. But by now, they could hardly focus. They wanted to keep the kitchen quiet so they could hear the reaction from the finicky guest. The only reaction was one of joy. To this man, these potato chips were perfect! And before long, every visitor to the Moon Lake house had to try the new delicacy that George and Kate invented. The question is, did this really happen? Well, we just can't say for certain. It certainly feels like an incident that grew in proportions due to the fun story that is often told. There are recipes from before the Moon Lake incident in 1853 that sound an awful lot like potato chips. So to say George and Kate invented potato chips, with or without the help of their pesky customer, is probably not true. However, it is true that George, the son of an African-American jockey and a Mohawk Indian, opened his own wildly popular restaurant in New York before the Civil War. It was built largely on the success and novelty of potato chips. The place, named Crumbs, which was a nickname of sorts, featured a basket of chips at each table with a meal. Thanks, Victoria. And now, here's Jason Lawrence with story number two. If you are a regular listener of The Past and the Curious, you'll know how excited we get about World's Fairs, the enormous expositions that bounced around the globe to introduce the people of the world to new technology, products, people, and thrills. The world was much more mysterious and unfamiliar in, say, 1904, when the St. Louis World's Fair was in full gear. This fair was themed to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase and subsequent Lewis and Clark expedition, but it was also a very international and technological affair. Millions of guests flocked to see and hear the newest of everything. John Philip Sousa and his music were popular. A modern electrical socket was debuted, and an early electric typewriter amazed guests. Other things people saw here for the very first time included the plans for a naval submarine, a functioning x-ray machine, a baby incubator, an automatic dishwasher, and Dr. Pepper soda. But if anything stole the show, it was food. One of the most famous tales is, yet again, apocryphal. Really has us asking, why are there so many apocryphal tales about food? Anyway, the fair ran from April to December of 1904, and that summer was a hot one. As a guest, you might find yourself nearly exhausted from a day on the fairgrounds. Imagine, you've been walking most of the day with the crowds in the summer sun. 
Occasionally, you'd take a break and lounge in the shade of the beautiful grounds that were created for the fair, but soon enough, you'd head back to the expositions. That's what you paid the ticket price for, after all. Time inside might be spent clamoring, among many others, to hear a lecture from someone Mark Twain called the eighth wonder of the world, Helen Keller. But sitting through these lectures or wandering the exhibition halls was rough. This was long before air conditioning, and you were wearing clothes of the era. Not as comfortable and certainly not as breathable as the clothes we wear today. So, wiping the sweat from your brow and ignoring the likely stench of your body odor, you finally catch a whiff of something fragrant and sweet. Everyone is excited to try this new treat. They're calling it fairy floss. But it doesn't strike you as refreshing at the moment, and it won't help to cool you off. Today we know this fairy floss as cotton candy. You pass by the vendor for now. Maybe you'll try it tonight after the sun sets. And just then, you are overjoyed to hear the two words that people at fairs and baseball games and festivals love to hear today just as much as they did in 1904. Ice cream! Ice cream! Well, okay. This has taken a nice turn, hasn't it? Ice cream sure sounds delicious. Now, don't get me wrong. Ice cream is nothing new in 1904. Long before any of this, George Washington enjoyed it. Dolly Madison served it at the White House. Thomas Jefferson even tried to figure out how to keep it available all year long, before artificial refrigeration was available. So, eager for a taste, you join the line of people in front of the cart where a young Frenchman is scooping his iced cream into paper dishes. Luckily, this is not a penny-lick cart. You see, in years past, ice cream would be served in tiny little glasses for a penny apiece. Customers would lick the ice cream out and then return the glass. But sometimes the crowd was too large and there weren't enough glasses, so if an ice cream vendor wanted to keep selling, he'd have to reuse the penny-lick glasses, without washing them. And they'd probably been sitting in the sun for a few hours. Um, gross. But you are no penny-licker. No, you're more than happy to pony up the few extra cents to have your ice cream served in a disposable paper dish. The only problem is that this young Frenchman's supply of paper dishes is getting smaller and smaller. By the time you get there, he might run out. And according to legend, that's exactly what happened. Arnold Fomichu, a young ice cream vendor, one of about 50 at the fair, ran out of paper dishes. Near his ice cream stand, though, was another stand operated by an immigrant from Syria named Ernest Hamwi. Now, Ernest wasn't selling ice cream. He was selling a unique kind of waffle from his homeland in the Middle East. Unfortunately for Ernest Hamwi, his hot waffle delicacy wasn't very popular in the summer heat. But Ernest recognized opportunity when he saw it, and devised a solution to get rid of his surplus of waffles while solving the young Frenchman's dilemma of where to scoop his ice cream. Like an ice cream emergency worker, Hamwe folded one of his waffles up into a cone and suggested Arnold scoop his ice cream into it. It was a match made in heaven. By the end of the 1904 World's Fair, everyone was eating ice cream in what was commonly called cornucopias. Now, the truth of this story is very hard to say, but as a matter of fact, the 1904 World's Fair popularized the ice cream cornucopia, or cone as we know it today. 
There are actually several people who made the claim that it was they who invented the cone that summer. Truthfully, delivering creams and puddings in a cone-like pastry was something that had existed many years before, but the ice cream cone as we know it really exploded in 1904. Ham Wee did have a pretty good claim to being the inventor, and he spun it into a career. The man from Syria founded the Cornucopia Waffle Company and later the Missouri Cone Company. Today, the International Society of Ice Cream Manufacturers, who would know about such matters, claim this tale of the Syrian and Frenchman's cooperative creativity as their official ice cream cone creation story. True or not, the story does not answer the most contentious of ice cream cone questions. Lick it or bite right in. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. You heard right. It's time for a food quiz, people. Question number one. When the men of the Lewis and Clark expedition were traveling up the Missouri River through the Great Plains, they needed a lot of energy to keep going. During this time period, can you guess how many pounds of meat the men would eat on average every day? The men were working very, very hard, often pulling their boats against the current of the river for miles and miles day after day. Other days, they'd paddle or use push poles to move their large, heavy craft. Luckily, the Great Plains boasted many animals like buffalo and elk for them to eat. There were men of the party who were designated hunters, and they had to work full-time to feed all of the men. Because historians say, on average, each man ate 9 to 11 pounds of meat each day. That's like a bowling ball of meat. It's like 40 quarter pounders. But honestly, you see, they had to. They were burning so much energy doing the backbreaking work at the beginning of the journey. Later, times were much leaner and they had to make do with a, a lot less, uh, often learning to eat some very unusual foods, which is something we'll probably talk about in the future. Question number two. What popular candy was originally sold in Austria as an aid to help people quit smoking? In 1926, a candy that is essentially compressed blocks of sweetened peppermint made their debut. The German word for peppermint is Pfefferminz, which is spelled P-H-E-F-F-E-R M-I-N-T-Z. So the candy name was an abbreviation of sorts. Pez. The Pez dispensers, now familiar for their cartoon and comic characters, were originally modeled after lighters. And your third and final food question. Each spring, hundreds of people gather at Cooper's Hill in England for a contest where people chase what food item down a long steep hill. Well, each year people gather for a dangerous competition where groups of people 
run, tumble, and roll down a hill to be the first to catch a wheel of cheese. The cheese is a seven to nine pound wheel of double Gloucester. There's some dispute as to why the tradition happens. One camp claims it was originally a competition between farmers for the rights to let their cattle graze on the limited land of the area. Others say it comes from a Viking tradition of rolling large wheels, often on fire, down a hill at the beginning of each spring. It's sort of like a cleansing ceremony. Either way, it's kind of dangerous, but it's also kind of hilarious to watch. And for our last story, our special guest, my old friend and Food Network television star, Chef Damaris Phillips. Tomatoes are everywhere. They are the tea in the BLT. They are the red sauce on top of your pasta and under the cheese on your pizza. Tomatoes are the salsa on your chips and the soup in your can. We love them. But this wasn't always the case. Though common among the Aztec Indians, going as far back as the 700s, the tomato, or tomato as they called it, weren't as widely eaten as they are now. It really wasn't until after the American Civil War that canning made it possible to save, ship, and savor the red vegetable. Or is it a fruit? We always forget. In some places and in some times, some people thought the tomato were poisonous. Not everyone, mind you, but some. In fact, there are stories of medieval nobles dying after eating tomatoes on their fancy pewter plates. But many researchers today say that those fancy plates used by rich nobility had a high amount of lead in them. And the acid in the tomatoes made that lead leach into their meals. Tomatoes are not poisonous, but lead sure is. Still, if you heard about something like this happening and you knew the tomato was related to and also looked like plants such as mandrake or nightshades, which are in fact very, very poisonous, you might think twice about eating tomatoes too. And in America, there were many places where tomatoes were eaten with smiles and long, healthy lives, but not everywhere. You have to remember in the early 19th century, information didn't travel easily and people tended to stay in one place for most of their lives. So knowledge that you knew or discovered might only stay in your town. If folks were communicating with others over great distances, it probably wasn't to share their favorite soup recipe. So some still believe tomatoes to be poisonous, even in the 1800s. So a famous story comes from Salem, New Jersey, which sits south of Philadelphia near the Delaware River. A well-known man, Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson, was an avid horticulturalist, or one who breeds, grows, and tends to plants. He also, according to the story, had a flair for the dramatic. Robert had grown tired and frustrated with everyone in town's refusal to eat tomatoes, which he saw as a wonderful option to farm in the summer. They were a great crop nutritious, filling, versatile, and delicious. He knew it was folly not to grow and use them, but the townsfolk, they were not convinced. Robert decided he was the man to convince them of the truth. He just had to do something big. So he made an announcement, 
And on a September morning, a huge crowd of people gathered near the town courthouse. On the steps of the majestic building sat nothing but a bushel of tomatoes, glimmering like a pot of red gold in the sunlight. Red, poisonous gold, the people probably thought. As the iron church bells began ringing, Colonel Robert Johnson appeared. After the bell had tolled its heavy toll, his footsteps were the only sound to be heard. The silent and confused crowd parted and a path appeared for him to reach the stairs of the courthouse. By now, a military band had begun to play music. Still, everyone in the audience watched in silent anticipation. Reaching the top of the stairs, he turned around, the tails of his fine black suit flapping in the wind. He bent over the bushel with an outstretched arm, and he picked the finest-looking tomato. Standing up and facing the crowd, he brought it to his mouth and took a bite. One famous version of the story says a horrified woman in the audience began to shriek and then passed out, crumpled to the stone street beneath her. Undaunted, Colonel Johnson kept eating. He ate tomato after tomato. The band began to play a funeral dirge. Salem residents were convinced Robert was poisoning himself to death on the stairs of the courthouse. Some pleaded with him to stop. Stop! You will kill yourself, they cried. In the end, he was probably just uncomfortably full, as you would be if you ate a bushel full of tomatoes. But he made his point. Tomatoes were not poisonous. This story is often told to illustrate the myth that most Americans would not eat tomatoes for fear of death. But is it true? Well, probably not. Firstly, Colonel Johnson was a smart and industrious man. He wrote articles for farming publications and kept letters that he had written. He even wrote a history of the town of Salem. But curiously, he never mentioned any poisonous tomatoes, funeral dirges, or courthouse steps. The first written account historians have found of the event that you just heard is from another history of Salem. One that was written in the 1930s, over a hundred years after the event supposedly happened. Do you think it's reasonable to expect that a history written a century after an event would be accurate? There are no eyewitnesses and no surviving documents, no primary sources. It's possible that the story could have been passed down by word of mouth, but you've played telephone before. The apocryphal story was then adapted for a family storybook that later wound up as a famous scene on a widely heard CBS program in 1949. You can imagine why many people would believe it's truth if that's the case. The people in the story are real, and some of the beliefs of poisonous tomatoes might have been true. But did he stand in front of a thousand or more people who thought he would die from the stunt? Well, maybe. But the evidence, or lack thereof, lead us to the conclusion of probably not. And last but not least, I'm excited to welcome for the first time Mr. Chris Rodehofer, a really great friend of mine. He's playing guitar on this song. Uh, if you listen in the future, he's actually going to be featured playing guitar and singing. Um, I think that's going to be in the May episode. Uh, also joining us are my old friend Rob Collier, who you've heard on the Tamerlane Trio uh, on the Past and the Curious. Also, 
Uh, and we're doing one of my favorite songs called Crow Black Chicken because I like chicken pie. Thanks again for listening to episode number seven. Be sure to tell all your friends about how great it is. Uh, and check out our Patreon page too. We'll post that on our Facebook account uh, and on we'll put it on our website, thepastandthecurious.com. Without further ado, though, again, chicken pie. Went up on the mountain, give my horn a blow, until I thought I heard some pretty guy say, yonder comes my bow. Crow black chick for midnight, crow black chick for days, until along come a big old hoot out, and she took my chicken away. Crow black chicken, crow for days, crow black chicken, fly away. Crow black chicken, crow for days, cause I like chicken pie. Big ol' hoot out, honey, and she took my